because it's my way and uh, this is how I think we ought to do it and so we'll uh, do it that way I'm just kidding of course I mean kidding 40% on things I think that in terms of an introduction uh, to a book of all of the books in the Old Testament that really warrant one to really understand what it is that this book means and one of the desires that I have in teaching any passage in the Bible is that I don't I don't need you to do handstands or to wow or to jump or to whatever all I ever intend is that we'll walk away understanding the passage a little bit the meaning of the passage and then perhaps for the rest of our lives no matter where we find ourselves in this big wide world that that passage will be a friend to us that we can turn to it morning or evening and I can say I know what that passage means. I know what, why it's in the Bible. I know what it's intended to communicate to me. And I think the book of Joshua, in order for it to have that kind of a place in our lives, where for the rest of our lives, devotionally, we would turn to the book and say, yes, this is more than just a history of the children of Israel. This speaks something to me. It requires a little bit of an explanation. As we come to the book of Joshua, we're entering into a, a whole new division uh, of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Law or the Pentateuch. The Jews are known as the Torah. It's the Law of Moses. And when we come into the book of Joshua, from the book of Joshua all the way through to the book of Esther, that subdivision of the Old Testament is known as the historical books. And they give us a history of the nation of Israel from the time of the death of Moses to the conquest of the promised land all the way through all of the kings and ultimately into the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity that the children of Israel uh, ultimately went into and their restoration even back into the land under uh, Nehemiah and under Ezra. So we enter into a, a new division. Following the uh, Esther and these books, these historical books, I think it's interesting at least to realize that the next division, the third division of the Old Testament is known as the books of poetry or the wisdom books. And that includes uh, Ecclesiastes, it includes the book of Proverbs, it includes all of the Psalms. And then following that's the final division of the Old Testament, which is the prophets, which take us from Isaiah to Malachi. And that's how the Jews divided the Old Testament more or less and uh, how it's divided even today. In the old, uh, the old Testament history, it's more than just God saying, listen, I wanted to, want you to know a few things about the Jews and the Jewish nation and this great uh, olive tree that you've been grafted into as Christians. It's more than just strict history. It's what, is, uh, what we know and what we call, uh, and ultimately everyone will un want to understand the terminology, but we call it typical history. And uh, in other words... It is an actual record of the history of the children of Israel, but it's a type. It's a picture. As we look at the physical things that they went through, all of those physical experiences and different things that, that happened between them, them and God, the Bible teaches that they speak something spiritual 
to us as Christians. They're intended when we read about uh, coming out of Egypt, we read about crossing the Red Sea. Ultimately, we're going to read in a week or so about them crossing the Jordan River. All of these things are intended to produce, when we think about those things, something spiritual that has happened in our lives as Christians. So the, it, the Old Testament history is a typology. It is a picture of, of, a, of a New Testament uh, truth. You remember Jesus when he spoke to the religious leaders concerning the Old Testament. He said, you search the scriptures, and the only scriptures at that time were the Old Testament scriptures. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you'll have, find everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. So anytime you want to do a Bible study in the Old Testament and you say, I don't want to leave that section of Scripture that I'm teaching until I have brought it to its highest heights in terms of its application today, then we don't do that until we bring that passage to Jesus and what that passage is speaking about Him and what He has done for us and what He's done in the world. The whole Bible, the volume of the book, the writer of the book of Hebrews declared in the same vein, the volume of the book testifies of Him. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he spoke about some of these great events quoting from the Old Testament. And he said to them, these things were done as examples and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so it's all intended to speak something spiritual to us, to speak something spiritually to us about Jesus himself, about our personal relationship with him. You remember when we were studying the law, and I'm not going to take us back through Genesis to Deuteronomy, but when we studied the law and we looked at, uh, for instance, the furnishings in the tabernacle and ultimately the furnishings that would be in the temple, all of them spoke of Jesus. The tabernacle entirely spoke of Jesus. The sacrifices, every one of them spoke of Jesus. The burnt offering, which was completely consumed by the fire, spoke of His consecration to the will of the Father. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. And then it speaks to us as Christians of our need to then give our lives to the Father in order for Him to use them as, as fully and richly as He wants to be uh, to use them. I beseech thee, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So we could just look and say, burnt offering, yeah, this is the parts of the, the oxen that they threw on the fire and they burned it and then they did this with the ashes and it's a technical X's and O's and it's just kind of a, a, a you know, accountant chart and it's just dried and this kind of thing. But it's not that. It all speaks of Christ. It all speaks something to us as, as Christians today. You take in terms of uh, setting the stage for where we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 1. We're going to get through a verse tonight. That's my promise. Poof, poof. Lord willing, write in everything. Beware he who thinks he stands lest he fall. So, but it, it, important for us to understand in terms of this whole typology and picture. Egypt is a picture of the world. Egypt for us, for the children of Israel, was a place of bondage. 
And the world is a place of bondage. They, they were in the physical bondage to the Egyptians, but that whole experience speaks of the bondage that all of us are born into in this world, the greater bondage of sin. That God's redemption of them, His saving them out of that bondage from Egypt is a picture of our salvation, how God has saved us out of the world and out of the bondage of our sin. Pharaoh rose up to resist God's use of Moses in order to redeem or to save the children of Israel in the same way that there was quite a fight that went on for each and every one of us. As Pharaoh is a type of the devil who rose up and fought, no doubt, tooth and nail to keep you and I from one day being saved and delivered from the bondage of this world. The crossing of the Red Sea, a picture of water baptism, which is important in the Christian life. And then they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. A picture of the Christian who is born again, they're water baptized, they're out of Egypt. I mean, give them credit for that. But they never enter the promised land. For whatever reason, they never uh, walk by faith in the promises that are found in the Bible. So whether because of unbelief or because of carnality or uh, because of lukewarmness or whatever it is, they decide, I'm happy enough just to be out of the world. I'm water baptized. I'm happy I'm on my way to heaven. But in terms of the promises of God and possessing them and, what, and every day being conformed in a greater measure to the image of Christ, that's not something I'm interested in. I don't, I don't uh, grab the promises. I don't claim the promises. I don't you know, step out into the promises. And so what does a person do that does that? They just wander around in a wilderness. They just follow their tail around in the wilderness, never accomplish anything for God. It's just all a picture. And, and, uh, and, and that brings us kind of up to this place where Joshua is going to lead them in the conquest of, of the promised land. And the land is, is really called the promised uh, land uh, based upon God's promises. You say, why, does, why is the promised land the promised land to the Jews? Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I promise you this land. God keeps His promises. I promise you this land and I promise your descendants this land. It was the land that was promised to them. So it's called the promised land. And the promised land for us as Christians is a picture of the full, rich, abundant, flowing with milk and honey spiritual life that's available to us as we take possession of every single promise of God in the Bible. That's our promised land. For them, again, it was a physical thing. If you've ever been to Israel, you've seen pictures of Israel, you ever go to Israel, no one would put down the blessing of those people receiving that promised land. It's a beautiful land. It's a, it's a little miniature California. Forests in the north, desert in the south, oceans on the coastline of the entire western side, Jordan River, a central valley. It's, it's fabulous. You feel like you're, you never left. Well, I won't say that. Uh, you do feel like you left Modesto. But it's, it wouldn't matter if you went there from Paris. It's, fa- you know, it's, it's its own, own place. Really, really uh, something and really, really beautiful. So, but... Physically, that was a physical thing that was given to them. The greater picture 
is when God looks and says to a child of God, look at all of my promises in this book. Look at the spiritual promised land that's available to you. Look at how rich I have made you. Look at the life that I described for you. All of it on the other side of believing these promises, possessing these promises, claiming them and making them yours. And and so it's a picture of, of that life. A life, not a land. Land can be come and go, a life. It's us, it's ours. But, but a life that is rich, abundant, flowing with milk and honey, the richest kind of life that a person can, can live. Now Joshua is a picture, we're talking about pictures here, he's a picture of Jesus. And in fact, their, their names essentially mean the same thing in a non-technical kind of way. Joshua is the Hebrew for the, Jew, for the uh, uh, Greek Jesus. And both names mean Jehovah is salvation. And it's interesting to note that Moses, who represented the law, he could not bring the children of Israel into the land of milk and honey, into the promises. Only Joshua could do that. Just as no one can ever enter into the promises of God for the Christian on the basis of the law. It can only occur through faith in in Jesus. But it's also interesting to note that the writer of the book of Hebrews says that just as Joshua did something that Moses could not do, just as Joshua led the children of Israel into a life and an experience that Moses could never do, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Jesus has brought us into a life that Joshua never could have brought us into. He has brought us into a peace that Joshua could never bring us into. So Joshua is a picture of Jesus, but like all pictures, they're nothing like the real thing. You say, give me, give me a picture of my wife or give me my wife. as a no-brainer. Give me my wife. So Joshua, hip, hip, hooray for him. He's terrific. I'm not putting him down. But he couldn't, he was, a, he, he could not bring anyone into the richness of, of what Christ has has brought us into. I think it's very important also to realize that the promised land does not represent heaven. And a lot of people think we talk about the promised land as Christians and we're headed to the promised land and these things and there's so many hymns written about the promised land. And so often the hymns will portray the promised land as heaven. Can't be. There are going to be wars in the promised land. There's going to be fighting in the promised land. The children of Israel are going to fail in the promised land. They're going to be deceived in the promised land. Uh, Not by God, but by the Gibeonites. So it's not a picture of heaven uh, at all. It's a picture of the life that we possess, the promises of God that we possess, and and all of the obstacles that we face also as we grow in Christlikeness in our relationship with the Lord. Now, some of this may again, as I said, seem uh, you know, unnecessarily uh, unimportant or complicated at the moment. But as we go through uh, the book over the next uh, coming weeks, uh, I'll build on this in, in the sense that I will just uh, candidly refer to certain experiences and transfer them over to uh, what they mean for us as Christians and, and what they're a picture and a type of. And so you'll know what in the world it is that I'm doing. Chapter 1, verse 1. Please, no applause. Just kidding. 
After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that's the highest title you can have in life, because it's the one that we attain the highest position in heaven related to that. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. After the death of the servant, Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. And when they, when they talk in the Old Testament, they give somebody's name, and then they say, it's the son of... That's like giving their last name. That's how you track them. Joshua, the son of Nun, Mo, he, God came to him. Moses' assistant... And this is what he said to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. That's known as clarity. In so you've got this death of Moses, and, and the death of Moses is recorded at the end of Deuteronomy. He's mentioned here, and so we just got this chronology that's, that's going on here. The one just leads right, flows chronologically right into the other. And so God begins by speaking to him, about the death of Moses. You think about, uh, and, and so, you know, kind of candidly and so clearly. But Moses needed to, I mean, Joshua needed to know that, and the children of Israel needed to know that also. In other words, Joshua, Moses isn't coming back. That's done. He was faithful. He's left his mark in human history. He was obedient servant to me. But Moses is gone. He ran well. And you're still here. You've got to accept the fact that he's dead. Now sometimes, or gathered to his fathers, sometimes when a person loses someone very close to them in this life, one of the things that they have to learn to do is we have to learn to accept what is called a new normal. Life was normal for 40 years this way. Life was normal for 50 years. This is what normal was for the two of us. But he's not here anymore. And she's not here anymore. So my normal has become something new. And there's that place where in our own lives, but also with the children of Israel here and with Joshua, where there has to be that place where I look and Joshua says, Moses is gone. He's not going to come back and rescue me here in any kind of way. I don't have him as a resource uh, any, any longer. And, and so I've got to get used to this, this new normal. Moses ran well. I'm still here. God didn't take me home at the same time. He still has plans for my life, and I need to be faithful to run like, like Moses ran. And so the Lord said, He's gone now. But what's the good news? The good news is... I'm still here. And I'm the one that made Moses all that he was, and I'll make you into the very same thing. I think one other thing about Joshua that's important to understand is God is kind of commissioning him now to follow Joshua. We think of Moses and so often when you Moses and Joshua so often when you see uh, a leader in the body of Christ who's getting a little bit older. Very often the people will begin to wonder. They'll start to say, 
Well, whose is Joshua? Who's going to follow him? Who's going to follow her in this, you know, influential ministry of, of some kind? And the question is, you know, who is that Joshua going to be? And sometimes we can tend to think, okay, here's a man, he's 99 years old and, and all, and maybe running the last lap, you know, in terms of his Christian service and, and looking around and saying, whose is Joshua? And we're looking around in the, the junior high group or something, like the Joshua's, we could think of Joshua here as being like uh, 17 years old and just a year away from graduating from high school and, and God's going to turn this whole thing over to him. Joshua's probably, he's at least 80 years old and probably 90 years old. And he's been uh, prepared uh, pretty considerably to follow uh, Moses here in this position. You remember when uh, is Joshua, or Joshua was born in Egypt during the Egyptian captivity. We know here that he was born of the tribe of, of Ephraim, so he knew the years of bondage there in Egypt. Very soon after he came, the children of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, and, and the destruction of, of the Egyptian army by God in the Red Sea and all, Joshua was called to lead a military action against the people of Amalek who were attacking the children of Israel. And you remember the event back in Exodus chapter 17 where Moses was taken up on a high hill and uh, he held his arms up with a staff, and as he held the, uh, the staff up, the children of Israel were, were victorious in battle against the Amalekites. But when his arms would tire and come down, then the Amalekites would be victorious. So Aaron and Hur came along, propped themselves up alongside Moses, held his arms up until there was victory in the battle. Well, the general that was down in the valley fighting that battle was, was Joshua. So Joshua is he's, he's a, a battle-toughened, uh, war-seasoned uh, uh, man. I think uh, it was Joshua who accompanied Moses partway up Mount Sinai when he received the law from God. It was Moses, or it was Joshua, who was like a right-hand serv- servant to uh, Moses through all those forty years of of wandering in in the wilderness, and he was able to witness, like nobody else, to witness Moses's relationship with God uh, up up close. He was also one of the twelve spies that was sent in by Moses to spy out the land forty years earlier at Kadesh Barnea, when two of the f- the spies came back with a favorable report. Let's believe God. Let's go in and conquer the land. Ten came back with an evil report. No, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They're going to destroy us. They're going to wipe us out. The land is everything that God said it was, but we're not up to this. And the people, they believed the evil report of the ten, and they, they discounted the report uh, of the, uh, uh, the, the faithful two spies. Caleb was one of those two faithful spies, and so was Joshua. So he's a man of faith. He saw things the way that God saw things. He was Moses' assistant, as I said, through those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And boy, did he get an eyeful of ministry during those 40 years. The children of Israel were really, really rough on Moses. Every time he seemed to turn around, there was another rebellion. They were carnal. They complained like, I don't know who complains, but they complained. So as God calls Joshua now to follow Moses, he's fully aware of what it's going to be required now to lead these people. In other words, 
it, what, what happens with Joshua, Joshua isn't in all of this just thinking, all right, now listen, I, 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 I kind of fight this battle and I hang around, uh, uh, you know, Moses and I kind of get in good and become his right-hand man and all of this because maybe one day I'll turn, I'll be the guy that follows Moses in this position. That never enters into Joshua's mind. All he did was just be faithful to the next thing that God had called him to do. And then when the hour came and God said, Joshua, you are the man, and I think he was as surprised as anybody else was, you are the man now to follow Moses, then he discovers, wow, as I look back, I can see how God was preparing me all along. And that's why obedience is so important in our relationship with the Lord. Especially if we want God to use our lives to reach the world. We want to make a difference for the Lord in this world. Is as we are obeying the Lord and obeying His Word, it's translating into a rich personal life relationship with God. And, and it's in a life that is blessed. All of those things. But at the same time, we are being quietly, most often unknowingly, prepared for the next big thing that God knows that He wants to do in our lives. And so Moses was prepared while he didn't even realize he was being uh, prepared. And as I say with some frequency, because it's heartbreaking whenever you, you see this violated, there, there is some, God's preparation of our lives for what the next thing is that He's going to do in our lives can be very rigorous it can be very demanding and very, very hard. But there is something harder than the preparation. And that is to one day end up in a position that I haven't been properly prepared for. And God never does that to His servants. And so, don't look at, at Joshua and say, Wow, he's, you know, 24 years old and he's taken over this big whole thing and how in the world is he going to survive? Uh, he's a bit older than that. But even beyond his chronological age, he's been very, very well prepared by God in order to take over this, this position. God speaks to him and he says, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, the Jordan River, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. And so he tells them, this is what I want you to do. You're going to lead them now over this land. It's not going to be Moses. He's dead. You're the one that's going to do this now. Now, as I mentioned this morning, and this is the last time I'm going to say, well, maybe not the last time, but it'll try to be the last time that I say, as I mentioned this morning, because we taught on this in the morning, which is why I don't teach the morning message from the evening message, because all I would be saying is, as I said this morning, it's not like I got a bunch of things to say. It's not like I have three or four sermons on every passage. So as I said this morning, that's the next to last time that I'm going to be saying that when we look at Joshua, it is important to realize, both for him and the children of Israel, that they really are in a very difficult place because immediately behind them is the death of Moses. And Moses was what was familiar to them. Moses was the almost always unfailing leader of the people for 40 years. As, as I met... Oh, He was something. He was really, really something. But you think about, you think about Moses and the place that he had in, in the lives of the children of Israel, the minds of the children of Israel. We think of Abraham and he's known as Father Abraham because it was through Abraham 
that God supplied the bloodline for the Jews. They would come from that bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And no one would deny the intimacy of, of relationship between Abraham and the Lord, and nobody would deny the importance of, of, of Abraham and his place in Jewish history. He's known as Father Abraham by the Jews. But it was under Moses that the children of Israel became the unique spiritual and moral people that they became in all of human history. Moses was a really, really big deal to them. And now he's gone. And there's a big difference between being an assistant and being where the buck stops. That's just the way that it is. There's a big difference. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about our presidents or anything like that. There's a big difference between campaigning. I'm not talking about Obama or anything like that. I hope you're praying for President Obama, President-elect. But there's a big difference between campaigning and getting elected to an office, all of the celebrations, all the inauguration, all those kind of things. And then the day you walk into that office, the buck stops there, and you are yet today the most powerful human being in the world. It's, it's all on you now in that place. And that's kind of the place that Joshua finds himself in. Wow. It's one thing to celebrate. And I remember the service. Moses laid hands on me and all the people said, hip, hip, hooray. Then you walk into the office and go, oh, no, now what do I do? That's kind of where he is. It's a big loss for the children of Israel. And so he said, you're the one that's going to lead them in. It's not going to be Moses. In every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. And so here is the, God spoke to them and spoke to Joshua and said, all that land is yours. I promised it to you. Now you're going to take possession of it. And all you have to do is go in and possess it and take it. He said, it's already yours, past tense, done. It's yours. It's 100%, tap, tap, no erases. It's yours. It belongs to you. But you have to possess it. You have to walk in by faith, obey me, fight the battles, do what is necessary of faith then to possess this land. But it's all yours, past tense, to just go in and take. And it's a picture for us in our Christian life, again, as we would look at the hundreds of promises in the Bible, and God says, they're all yours. You're in Christ Jesus. All of these promises belong to every single Christian, no matter how obscure or how powerless or how overlooked in the world. This life, this spiritual life, it belongs to you, and you will have as much of this spiritual life, this taste of heaven, this side of heaven, as you're willing to claim and to possess on your own. I think the classic example or illustration that's used of this is the man who has a rich uncle who dies. And the rich uncle leaves him with a hundred million dollars as an inheritance. And here is the nephew and, and he's been told there's a hundred million dollars in your account now because of your rich uncle. And he continues to live as a pauper in the world 
Never goes to the bank, never draws out a dollar, never writes out a check. It's all his. He is a multimillionaire, but he lives in poverty because he will not believe the promise that the money belongs to him. He will not claim it and take possession of it. So he lives a million miles below the lifestyle that's available to him. And it's the same thing spiritually. To have all of these promises given to us in the Bible. But if a person looks at it and says, I don't believe that that's true of me. I don't believe that God has left that, that to me. And then to live all of our Christian life as if we were poor and beggars and there was hardly, you know, we just, all we are is living like everybody else in the world, only we go to heaven at the end of this hell. That's to live way below the promises of God. So how does it work? Pick up our Bible, and we read about the fact that God loves me. You know, that's not easy for a lot of people to accept. A person looks and says, I'm going to claim that promise, that truth about God. The rest of my life, I'm not going to wonder whether God loves me. I'm going to believe that to be true. I'm going to take possession of that promise here today and make that a part of my Christian experience. person reads a promise about the fact that God has forgiven us when we put our faith in Christ, that He forgives us every single time we repent of our sin and we come to God and ask forgiveness even as Christians. A person can look and live all of their Christian life, they're on their way to heaven. They beat themselves up every single day over past sin, whether it was 50 years ago or whether it was five days ago. And they're living way below the promises that God has given to them. And what needs to happen? I need to possess that promise and say, I believe that God has forgiven me of my sins because God has promised in His Word that He's done that. I'm not going to think about what I was before I knew Christ and what I did. Every time that comes into my mind, I'm going to bring that thought into captivity under the obedience of Christ because it's exalting itself against the knowledge of God. What I know to be true of God, I'm going to cast that out of my mind for the rest of my Christian life. I'm going to live like a forgiven person. That person takes ten jumps forward and the quality of their Christian life. Somebody else looks and, and, and sees in the Bible the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power to live for Christ, to live for God in a fallen world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, anywhere God puts us in this whole wide world, the power to live for Him. From an apartment complex in Modesto to Moscow to uh, Rio de Janeiro, anywhere Christians are, the power to live for Christ there. And a person looks and says, I believe that to be true because God has promised it, so I appropriate that into my life. Jesus, give me the power to live for you, supernatural ability to live for you in this world, in any environment that you put me in, and I'm going to believe that to be true of my life, and I'm going to ask to be refilled with your Spirit every time I feel like I've leaked a little bit. That person has taken a, a ten-mile jump into the promised land. And so it is with one promise after another, after another, after another. And because we have so many exceeding rich and wonderful promises that God has given to us, we should never stop growing as Christians. It's interesting, with the children of Israel here, God's going to give them the boundaries there in verse 4. We'll get to verse 4 tonight. 
Listen, I'm being bold like crazy. You, 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 could, you feel it, don't you? Such limbs I'm willing to go out on. But they never, God gives them all of this physical promised land. They never fully possessed it. This generation under Joshua. It wasn't Joshua's fault. They'll, later put, they'll possess it for a short period of time under David and under King Solomon. Why didn't they possess all of this land that God had given to them? Well, they got into it and they began to possess the land. They said, I'm okay with this. This is all the Christianity I want. This is all the God I want. This is all the promises I want. I'll just stop right here and this is all. We won't drive out the, the Philistines. We won't drive out the Canaanites. It's not worth the aggravation. I'm, I'm happy with the, the walk with God that I have and, you know, we'll leave it to somebody else to take it the rest of the way. The same thing happens in our Christian lives. And you watch so many people, they walk with the Lord, Man, they take about half of the promises of God the first two years that they walk with Christ. And something goofy happens. Somewhere in there they just figure, that's enough. That's all I want. I'm happy with that. That's enough for me. And they stop growing in the promises. Now there's a problem with that. One of the problems with that is that, again, God knows that we need to continually be growing in our maturity because He knows sometimes really big things can be coming our way that we don't know about and we're going to need that maturity. So the importance of always, to, the, to the, if any one of us in this room, we just sat down and, and we just planted a flag right here five years ago, five months ago, five days ago, 25 years ago, and, and we said, that's as far as I go in this Christian walk. I'm not going to grow anymore, or we can't recognize growth in our life for a long period of time. have to repent of that. God wants us to grow in these promises all the way until we see Him. And so it was all there to be received, but they would have to have the faith to walk out on it, and as they walked out on the land, they discover it's ours. And one of the most exciting feelings in, in a Christian life is to look at a promise of God, and you kind of do this kind of a deal. You walk out there, and you wonder if it'll hold me. I don't know. Has it, has it, has it held somebody as heavy as me before, that promise? It was something like that. And you just wonder about it a little bit. Whoop, whoop, whoa, he's okay right at that thing. Got that pulpit holding me right here and everything. And then one day, you just walk out on it. And you go, wow, it held. It held. And all the promises hold that way. And one of the most exciting feelings in the Christian life is to take and possess each promise that way and to realize this is true. I took a step out on it and discovered it was already mine and waiting for me to take possession of. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, he gives the border of the promised land to Joshua, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea, the Mediterranean sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And I will not leave you nor forsake you. 
And so Joshua gets the promise here from the Lord that God is going to be with him in the same measure that God was with, uh, with uh, Moses. And he had watched up close all the things that God had been to Moses. God said, listen Joshua, you're following Moses. You've seen all that's happened through Moses' life. I did all that. I did all that through his life. And now I'm going to do all those things that I'm calling you to through your life. I'm the explanation for the greatness of Moses' life, not Moses. And I'll be the explanation for the greatness of your life at the end of your life. And, and so it is with, with each of our lives. And he gives, the Lord, gives Joshua here this great promise, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And as we saw this morning, it's amazing how God views things. Here he is, Joshua, death of Moses behind him, this gigantic venture in faith, the conquest of the promised land in front of him. And here he is, a man with, I mean, great challenges on before him and behind him and you say here is a man who is greatly in need of encouragement God knows it what in the world is God going to say to someone who suffered this kind of a loss and yet is being called to this step of faith what does God say to a person like that there's one thing I'm going with you I'm going with you I'll be with you in the land and that's the promise Again, I use the illustration this morning. I'm almost done with this whole thing. But I love the illustration. Frederick the Great, who, when he was in a particular battle, he uh, sent a message to one of his generals, and he said uh, to his general, he said, I'm sending 60,000 troops to you as a reinforcement for their uh, offensive that they were going to take. And when the troops came, the general counted the troops, and there were only 50,000. And he wrote back a letter of protest to Frederick the Great. You promised 60,000, and you only sent 50,000. And Frederick the Great wrote back, and he said, It's no mistake, I counted you for 10,000. Wow. Who needed those 10,000? I mean, when there's that, that kind of a you know, confidence that's been put in you that way. But the, but the idea is... What do we count Jesus for in our lives? When He calls us to do these things that we look at and say, this is way beyond me. God says, here's, here's the promise that overwhelms all of that. I'm going to go with you, and I'll never leave you or forsake you. That never leave you or forsake you, it literally means, I, I will never leave you or abandon you. Now, for a certain kind of person in this room, that's something. Where he comes in and he says, listen, I don't know what ha who has done what or any of these kind of things. Don't impose what you've experienced by other people. Don't impose that on me. When I say, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you, I won't do it. You'll never turn around and wonder where I went. I don't abandon people and I don't leave people. Imagine what that did in his heart. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give 
to them. You're going to do it. It's as good as done if you just have courage and be strong and of good courage. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. So he says, listen, Joshua, here's something you need to understand. And, and it's true about every one of us as Christians also. You're going to be making decisions, Joshua, that affect other people. In fact, you're going to be making decisions that affect millions of people. And so I, I, you've got to understand something right up front. That what's required for you to be successful is an absolute, unwavering, undeviating away from obedience to the Word of God in order for you to be successful on things. can't be a thing where you just say, well, at least I don't sin to the right, I only sin to the left. He said it can't be right or left. You've got to walk right down the straight and down the narrow in obedience to my Word. I don't know what kind of margins you have in your life between you and the world and God and these kind of things. God keeps me on a very, very short leash. I get into trouble if I'm not kept on a short leash. And I personally can never have any confidence in my personal relationship with the Lord to bless me and to bless my life if I'm walking in deliberate disobedience to Him. It doesn't mean I, it doesn't mean I don't sin. I do sin. But I don't plan it. And I don't stay in it after I have. I can go off and yell at somebody like anybody else or whatever if I'm not being in the spirit on things. The staff knows. I just yell at them day after day. I'm just kidding. So I use it as an illustration. Don't think I'm a yeller. I yell more in this pulpit than anywhere else in life, actually. But, um, but there needs to be that for us to be confident concerning our service to the Lord. And what's out in front of us? Absolute obedience to the Word of God. And then not only that, he said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then I will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So he said, I want you to not obey the Word of God, but then I also want you to take this Word and I want you to meditate on it every fifth day or for 25 minutes each morning. He says, you're going to meditate on it day and night. And the word meditate, it has the idea in the Hebrew, it means to mutter. It means to learn, read a passage in the morning, and then kind of mutter it over to yourself throughout the day. It's like um, uh, how a cow will chew its cud. It will eat the grass, but then it has how many stomachs? Five stomachs, seven stomachs, something like that. And it just keeps doing its thing until it has really made mincemeat out of, uh, of that, that grass, and then now all of the nutrition in that grass has now become a part of the cow's whole life. So that's the way the Word of God is to be handled, is to be where we read the Word of God as we're going through the day. I mean, it doesn't mean that you need to be quoting verses back to yourself while you're performing surgery, but I mean, it's, the idea is, is that all through the day, the Word of God is, is something that's at the forefront of my mind. I'm thinking about the things of, of the Lord. 
and, 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 and having it uh, just working it through. And it's the way that it goes from just being something that's in my mind to being something that's worked into the totality of our Christian life. Again, one of the most ex- I think one of the most exciting experiences in life is to take a passage that you read it in the morning, you read it somewhere, and you look at it and say, I don't have the foggiest idea what that means. Or you look at it and say, you know, I think I know basically what this passage means, but I think there's a lot more to this passage than I understand. And just through the course of the day, while you're driving or while you're walking or whatever, you just talk the silly passage, I say silly reverently, passage over and over. You just talk it out with the Lord. And then how often, at one moment in time, boom, there it is. As you're just talking it through with Him, He gives you the revelation, that's what's really happening here. That's what's really happened in this passage right here. And it's so exciting to have that experience. And it comes with, with making the Word of God the single most important influence in my life is, is it's the thing that I'm meditating on through the day. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so the promise of, of being with him. And then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the, children, uh, the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourself, for within three days... You will cross over this Jordan to go in and to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So he gets his leadership around him, says, I want you to go through the whole camp. No, it's not a small thing. We're talking about two to three million people. And let him know, listen, make some pita bread, make some food, get some jerky together, whatever you've got to do. Have some provisions, because in three days we're going to cross that Jordan River and we're going to go into the promised land. Now, I don't know how much sense that makes to you, or how much sense it made to the people. They're going to cross the Jordan River in the springtime, where it's at flood stage. I mean, this Jordan River is just a gigantic flowing river in front of them. We'll talk. Sometimes people go to Israel today, and they're looking for the Jordan River. They think they're going to see something like you'd see in Colorado. And they're looking, and we're driving down the Jordan Valley, and we look and say, there's the Jordan River. That's the Jordan River? we got creeks in my city that are bigger than the Jordan River. Well, today they're pulling a lot of water out of the Sea of Galilee and out of the Jordan River for domestic use. So, you know, the, 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 the wa- there would have been a much greater water flow all the way up at the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to the Dead Sea. So you can't judge it by by how you see things today. So this, is a, this river is big, it's wide, it's overflowing, it's over its banks, it's running through the brush on the side of the river, and you would think that Joshua would have sent the men through the camp and said, all right, food, schmood, you don't need any food, just bring whatever you can bring. I need to know about every single man who can build a pontoon bridge. In this group, who can build rafts? We need to get a system to get... I mean, we've got to get three million people across the Jordan River to conquer the land. doesn't make any mention of that at all. He says, here's what God's saying. Just get some food, all right? We're going over in three days. That would be a mystery. Okay. 
Does God ever reveal things to you in your life one step at a time? And it seems like the step that He's revealing at the moment is um, fairly detached from the reality that anybody can see right before. What good does, is putting some food together when you've got a swollen Jordan River in front of you? God has things up His sleeve. Oh, can't use a gambling illustration related to God. God has resources. He has ways that are way better, greater than ours. And so this was the word that went through the camp. And then he said to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, you remember those were the two and a half tribes that said when they conquered uh, Sihon and Og on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River, Jordan today, and on the east side of the Jordan River, and they, that, those kings were um, defeated and they said, listen, we, we got cattle and this is good cattle land. We don't really want land in the promised land. We're content to live here. And uh, so these two and a half tribes, they had spoken to Moses and said, would this be okay? God saw, Moses sought the Lord related to that, and he came back to him and said, it's okay, you can, you can uh, camp there, but you have to help all of the other tribes in the conquest of the land. They helped you defeat Og and Sihon, so you could have this piece of land. You now have an obligation. You can settle there, but you need to enter into the battle for the conquest of, of the land uh, with him. And so he now reminds them of this promise. He said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Speaking of on the east side of the Jordan. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass over before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest, and, and, uh, rest as he gave you, and they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God has given them. Then, after that, you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. And so they answered Joshua, saying, All that you command, we will do. Now, there would have been a great encouragement. There wasn't any kind of a thing where they come back and say, Well, you know, we said that to Moses, but that's when this was under different management. We want to renegotiate this thing. Now, to their credit, they didn't do any of that kind of stuff. They said, listen, everything you command us to do, we're going to do it. And wherever you send us, you'll go. We will go. That's great. That's just as, the same degree, we haven't changed our mind, just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. So I said, if we've got any rebels against this vow that we've made, we'll go ahead and put them to death. Only be strong and of good courage. So basically, this would have been a tremendous encouragement to Joshua. They just said to him, now listen. Joshua, you got a lot on your plate. You're leading the most important people at this time in the history of the world 
on the most important thing that that generation had to do, the conquest of the promised land. And so Joshua, you just focus on leading. You just be a strong, courageous leader. You just focus on that. Don't worry about that, us. Just know that when you lead and you turn to look over your shoulder to see whether we're following you, we'll be right behind you. Now that's a great, that's a great blessing to any leader where a group of people would say that. You got enough, you got enough on the forward side of things that you don't need to be worrying about whether we're in or we're out. We're in. You just lead. You listen to God. You obey God. You lead us where God tells us to go. And then we're going to follow you. And that's the commitment that they made to Joshua. Well, of course we'll stop here tonight. And we'll pick things up. And they certainly, I, it might not be warp speed next week, but we will begin to move more quickly now having laid the foundation for Joshua a little bit. So it'd be good to read maybe chapters 2, 3, and 4 for next week. Let's stand together. If the worship team come forward, that'd be great.